can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need him. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a negro, there's no difference in the north and the south. There's just you know, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. Those, of course, were the words of writer and activist James Baldwin. No, he didn't say those in the year 2020. He said those back in the 60s. But somehow they still ring true to this very day, especially as we are now in day seven of protests around the country regarding the death of black man George Floyd. And it was just now released by an independent investigator that he died from asphyxia through strangulation. Um, and it's just another in the long line of black men, black women in this country being killed by police. It's nothing new. It doesn't go back a few years. It doesn't go back to Oscar Grant. It doesn't go back to Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X or Medgar Evers. It goes back to when black folks were forci forcibly removed from Africa and brought to America over 400 years ago. Hello and welcome. My name is Jesse James, and this is the first episode of James Baldwin's America, what I hope will be the first of many, many episodes of this podcast. This is by no means the circumstances of how I hoped this podcast would begin, but then one can never really plan for a worldwide pandemic, and one can never truly get over watching white bodies take the lives of black bodies over and over again. You see one and you spend time with it and you try and work through it on a personal level. You might talk with friends or family about it, but you can never really 
come to terms with what you're seeing. And then before you know it, another black life has been taken by another white body. And it never stops being traumatic. It never gets easier to try and deal with what you see. You never really know how to explain it to your children. And it's just something that this country, it's in this country's DNA. And I hope what this podcast can do on a basic level is not only introduce the works of James Baldwin, but show the people that live in this country. And not only that, there are good people of all races, but there are people of all races that are living the life that James Baldwin spoke of trying to make what this country was founded on, but has never really been able to be. Um, You might have a president saying that this country is great or we need to make it great again. Unfortunately, this country has never been great because it was founded on the backs of black men and women that put the work in this country to make it what it is on stolen lands from native individuals that have never received what they truly deserve either in land or money to make up for what was done to them. So in some small ways, I hope this podcast can be some sort of reconciliation And that word is something that you'll hear a lot on this podcast because it's something difficult to deal with. Because when you talk about reconciliation, you can take it in so many different ways, whether it's personal relationships or relationships with people that you meet on the street, or is it monetary, or does it come in jobs or entitlements? So that's one of many subjects that we're going to explore here on the podcast. There are a couple main points I want to make with this first episode. First and foremost is to introduce those of you who do not know James Baldwin, introduce him to you so you understand the importance uh, in which he carries for so many people to this day, even so long after his death. So with that being said, what I'd like to do right now is read an article from 2015, published by The Undefeated by Danielle Cadet about Baldwin. James Baldwin knew it was his job to reveal the truth, the truth about his race, the truth about his country. The ugly truths of racism, poverty, and inequality that plagued the United States during his lifetime, and that continue even now more than 30 years after his death. He confronted American racism with fearless honesty and courageously explored homosexuality through his literature and his life. And he did it with style. His brilliant prose combined with his own experience with the best and worst of that of the black life around him. The joy, the blues, the sermons, the spirituals, and the bitter sting of discrimination. As he said in his essay, The Creative Process, 
A society must assume that it is stable, but the artist must know and must let us know that there is nothing stable under heaven. The work of Baldwin, a product of Harlem, New York, and a citizen of the world, consistently reflected the experience of a black man in white America. His travels to France and Switzerland only nuanced his understanding of the social conditions of his race and his country. Although written abroad, his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, published in 1953, illuminated the struggle of poor inner-city residents and drew on the passion of the pulpit. His collection of essays, The Fire Next Time, explosively represented Black identity just as the country was coming to terms with just how much white supremacy was in its DNA. Giovanni's room dove straight into the taboo that was homosexuality, elevating the notion of identity through sexuality and social economic status without ever mentioning race once. As an impoverished gay black man, Baldwin was asked if he felt he'd had a bad luck of the draw. In fact, he believed he'd hit the jackpot. His identity informed his artistry, and his artistry strove to represent every individual whose access to American civil liberties was hampered by race, gender, sexuality, and socioeconomic status. Baldwin knew that as an artist, he was among a breed of men and women historically despised while living and acclaimed when safely dead. So he unapologetically implored the nation to see its true self through the beauty of its most marginalized. The truth of his words is not a history lesson of American culture gone by. It's a reflection of the country alive and in the here and now. As I said earlier, I want to tell you a little bit about my journey with Baldwin. So I just don't come off to some of you as some random jabroni trying to do a podcast about somebody so important to so many people. I was very late in my life coming to James Baldwin. I returned to um, get my undergraduate degree in my 30s. And it wasn't until my first semester as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that I took took a class focused on Baldwin. Despite having very little in common with him, we talked earlier about how he was a poor black gay man growing up in New York. I happen to be a poor white heterosexual man growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. But for some reason, I was drawn to Baldwin and his words and his message, and it connected with me. And I felt a kinship with him. I understood what he was saying. I understood his pain and his passion. And it all made sense to me very early on. And by the middle of my first semester, I realized that I wanted to do my master's thesis about Baldwin. I didn't know exactly what, but I knew whatever I did, Baldwin would be at the center of it. So I began reading everything by Baldwin. Then I began reading everything that other people wrote about Baldwin, whether it was David Leeming, Douglas Fields, Dwight McBride, or any other countless number of authors that have written about him in the past. 
But for me, most importantly, from day one, the person at the center of my Baldwin journey was Professor Craig Werner. For those of you that know Craig, know that his impact reaches far beyond the classroom. And he was able to make Baldwin make sense for me in parts that I didn't understand or I couldn't relate to. And not only am I talking about Craig now, but Craig will not will also be a guest in an upcoming episode. And he's somebody that I will go back to over and over on this show because he really is at the center of so much of my love and my involvement for Baldwin. But getting back to Baldwin, one of the things that struck me so early on when I was uh, began watching videos about him, that although he was only five feet, six inches tall, he commanded the screen with his presence, no matter the situation, whether it was talking to a group of young black men in San Francisco in the documentary, Take This Hammer, or whether it was lecturing conservative pundit William F. Buckley in 1965 in their famous debate at the University of Cambridge. Baldwin commanded whatever audience he was with, and that command came through the screen, and it touches you. It brings you into his story. It helps you see what he is seeing and what he is feeling. I've seen very few people that had the ability to do that. While Baldwin was a leading voice in the civil rights movement, he faced continual personal adversity and tragedy. He had so many friends that lost their lives, whether it was Medgar Evers or Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. His dear friend Lorraine Hansberry died from pancreatic cancer. And as he journeyed through the civil rights era in the 1960s, by the end of the decade, the next generation of writers and activists thought Baldwin was out of touch and that he was nothing more than a puppet for white liberals. So as he did throughout his life, he would bounce from America to Europe, to Turkey, back to Europe, back to the United States. And even though he had so much on his shoulders, whether it was taking care of his family or dealing with the loss of dear friends. He always tried to serve as a witness to the rest of the world and to get everyone to see the brutality and persecution that African-Americans faced on a daily basis in this country with absolutely no remorse from the country's white power structure. So as I continued my journey in graduate school, I began to teach different subjects in black culture, whether it was on black art or black music or black history. And as my teaching philosophy was being formed, I realized what I was learning from Baldwin could also be used to help teach the students I was in the classroom with. No matter the class I taught, Baldwin always came up because his voice may have been the loudest in the 1960s, but I was taking kids born in the year 2000 or later, and I was showing him 
that he was still at the center of importance for race relations in this country. And it was a breakthrough I had with students. Students saw the importance of Baldwin. Students had never even heard of Baldwin. They were able to see through the videos I would show them and make connections of what he was saying in the 1960s to what was happening in this age of chaos, I guess we'll call it. We could look and listen to black music and listen to Dancing in the Streets by Martha and the Vandellas. And then right after that, we could turn on any number of Kendrick Lamar songs and make connections as to what African-Americans were feeling today, whether it was in Ferguson or Oakland or now Minneapolis. So for me, the greatest challenge became getting a bunch of privileged white students to think outside of their own box, make them realize that the world is much bigger than any one of them. And Baldwin was a great person to use. He was the most phenomenal tool that I could ever hope for as a teacher. He served as that gateway to reach them. And once I was able to reach them, they wanted more. And so then you build on that and you have these building blocks of helping shape young minds in this country. And I have a lot of friends my age. I'm in my 40s. I have friends my age that want to tell me that the youth of today, they don't care. They're apathetic. They're selfish. And I chuckle because I have firsthand knowledge that absolutely none of that is true. They care about the world around him, around them. They're sick of what they're seeing on TV. They have zero tolerance for police brutality, whereas my generation, we were the ones that were apathetic to it. So I took it upon myself to make sure that I served as somebody to my students that they could talk to, run ideas by, use the information that they were learning in class outside of the classroom, whether in their own personal life or some of them have gone on to start to make a difference in this country, whether it's healthcare or law or becoming professional activists. The most important thing that I want to do with this podcast is teach people about Baldwin, but show them and show you that Baldwin's influence is still very much alive in the year 2020, that there are people all across this country, whether it be writers, poets, artists of any kind, musicians that have taken Baldwin's message and are using it to not only create their art, but to create the world in their image. And to me, that's the most important thing that an artist can do is take what they see in this world and reframe it for the masses to show the truth of what we are living in. Hold our country accountable and hold it up to a mirror so we can see that this violence 
that is happening towards people of color isn't an isolated incident. It's happening on a daily basis, and it's happening over and over and over again. Baldwin was sick of it in the 1960s. He died in 1987, still as fed up with it as ever. So what I'd like to do right now is play another short clip of Baldwin from 1968 talking about why people riot. The reason that black people are in the streets has to do with the lives they're forced to lead in this country. And they're forced to lead these lives by the indifference and the um, apathy and a certain kind of ignorance, a very willful ignorance on the part of their co-citizens. Everybody knows, no matter what they do not know, that they wouldn't like to be a black man in this country. They know that and they shut their minds against the rest of it, all the implications of being a black father or a black woman or a black son. And all of the implications involved in a human being's endeavor to take care of his wife, to take care of his children, to raise his children to be men and women in the teeth of a structure which is built to deny that I can be a human being or that my child can be. The great question in the country has been all the years that I've been living here and I was born here 43 years ago, is what does a Negro want? And this question masks a terrible knowledge. I want exactly what you want. And you know what you want. I want to be left alone. I don't want any of the things that people accuse Negroes of wanting. And I don't hate you. I simply want to be able to raise my children in peace and arrive at my own maturity in my own way, in peace. I don't want to be defined by you. I think that you and I might learn a great deal from each other. If you can overcome the curtain of my color, the curtain of my color is what you use to avoid facing the facts of our common history, the facts of American life. It is easy to call me a Negro or a nigger or a promising black man, but in fact, I'm a man like you. I want to live like you. This country is mine too. I paid as much for it as you. White means that you are European still. And black means that I'm African. And we both know, we've both been here too long. You can't go back to Ireland or Poland or England, and I can't go back to Africa. And we will live here together, or we'll die here together. And it's not I am telling you, Time is telling you, you will listen or you will perish. Before getting out of here, I just want to say that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. 
You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins, B-A-L-D-W-I-N-S dot America at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And please leave a five-star rating. I do want to say before reading one last piece of Baldwin literature that I'm very lucky to play at the end of this episode a song from a dear friend of mine. Her name is Jamie Dawson. She is absolutely phenomenal. I will put her contact information in the show notes if you want to contact her for any work. She is a poet. She's a singer. She's a dancer. She's pretty much one of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. Love you, Jamie. But I wanted to close today's episode in reading probably one of the most famous passages Baldwin ever wrote. It's from his two-part polemic essay, The Fire Next Time. And it goes with this. Everything now, we must assume, is in our hands. We have no right to assume otherwise. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious blacks, who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of the others, do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. If we do not dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated from the Bible in a song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water, the fire next time. Thank you very much for listening to the very first episode of James Baldwin's America. I'm Jesse James, and I'll talk to you later. Peace.
Breathe.